The year was 1995. And the church had changed dramatically. From the 1960s, those of you who attended church in the 60s, you'll remember that it was called High Church. Churches had steeples and stained glass windows. And people wore suits and ties to church and their Sunday best. But it changed in the early 60s. Calvary Chapel had some part in this, by the way. Some believe a really significant part. Some blame us for this. It changed to a come-as-you-are church with worship bands, drums, and electric guitars, which you would have never have seen in churches in the 60s. Church was about to change again, though, in 1995. The seeker-sensitive movement was in full gear. Young, hip pastors and worship leaders showing off their tattoos, screaming, Christians are cool too. The worst part of this movement was to give seekers what they wanted. So the idea was, let's get the seekers, let's give them, find out what they want in church, and let's give it to them. Positive messages, non-confronting, non-convicting messages that left them feeling good when they left the church so that they would come back again. But the seeker-sensitive movement ultimately was a failure because what good does it do to pack people into a church if people aren't making commitments to Christ, if people aren't giving their lives to Him? And so churches began to flounder with the end goal trying to fill seats and, and people responding for a while, but again not doing it. Now in 1995, which I referenced earlier, Rick Warren wrote a best-selling book called The Purpose-Driven Church. He hit on something. Churches had lost their purpose. They didn't know what they were about. They thought they were about trying to get rear ends in seats. That was their main goal. That's what they wanted to do. And they were willing to do anything, compromise the message, not talk about sin, not talk about what might help them, make them feel good. They were willing to do anything they could to get someone to, to, to be in the seats. Now, like a fast food restaurant that had expanded their menu to everything. Certain fast food restaurants, all of a sudden they've got everything on their menu. They bring in warmers and microwaves. And although they did more, they don't do anything well. And, and you don't really want to go to those restaurants. And I contrast that with a restaurant like In-N-Out Burger that only does a few things. Fries, burgers, sodas, and shakes. We could just say fries, burgers, and drinks. We could kind of bring it down to three things. That's all they do. But they do it really well because they know what their, they know what their purpose is. This is what their purpose is. They haven't gotten caught up in things that they're not supposed to be doing. Now, churches were doing it all, but they were missing the purpose of their mission. And churches began to look for purposes, the purpose-driven church. They began to try to figure out what is our purpose and what should we be doing. And they came up with all kinds of different things to do. But they missed the point that Rick Warren brought up in the purpose-driven church. And I don't agree with everything that he wrote in the book, by the way. There's something, but I want to talk about what I don't agree. I want to talk about what I agreed with. And that was that he saw, and this was in the book, that there are two things the church should do. Everything else is, everything else is expendable. Everything else can go away. But there are two things that we are to do. He called it the great commandment and the great commission. And as I said, I agree with this. If we don't do these, 
everything else we do doesn't matter. And you could take away everything else that we do and leave the great commandment and the great commission and we would be an effective church. What is the great commandment? Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. You need to love God with everything you have. Like our memory verse of the week, that we would seek his face. Remember the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation lost their first love? They had done everything else so well. They, they kept the word of God. They tested those who were false prophets, but they lost their first love. And we have to be in love with Jesus. We have to be in love with God. In fact, this is, this is heaven. Because the Bible says that, that Jesus is going to say to some, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. And so we have to know him. We have to cultivate our own personal relationship with God and examine our hearts and be honest with ourselves. Do we really love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Then he said this, this is the first and great commandment. So this is where the great commandment comes from. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If we will love God first and foremost, and then we will love the people around us, how could people not be attracted to Christ? Now, I'm not saying everyone. Some people will hate you for it. But Jesus said this in John 13, 35. By this, we will, by this, all will know that we are his disciples if we have a love for one another. He didn't say, by this, all will know that you are my disciples by your doctrine, by your politics, but by the fact that you love one another. No wonder the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. No wonder 2 Timothy tells us the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, bringing in those who are in opposition. No wonder it says in Galatians chapter 6 that if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness and restore such a one. This is the love that we're to have. And imagine if a big church or a little church loved God and loved people. I don't care what their church looked like. Steeples and stained glass or, or just a little old ugly building in some, in some strip mall somewhere. If they love God and love people, then, then it's going to be what God wants it to be. Now, that's the great commandment. Then there's the great commission. And this is brought up by Rick Warren as well in the Purpose Driven Church. This is our purpose. We don't have to go out and find a purpose. This is our purpose. This is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Think of that. All authority is Jesus's. Then he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. That's our vision. We don't need to come up with a vision that we try to sell people on. We need to go and make disciples of all nations. Notice it's not go and make converts of all nations. It's make disciples. It's more than just bringing people to Christ. It's bringing them into a deep, 
abiding, meaningful relationship with Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is part of what we are supposed to do. Making, um, uh, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. That's where the teaching of the Word of God comes in. We are making disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching them all the things that Jesus commanded. That's what churches do. This is our great commission. Again, everything else can go away, but this has to say, and then Jesus said this, and, I, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Just so we would know that as long as the church is still around, that he is with us even unto the end of the age. Now, that is what we find in our text. We find Romans getting saved. Go out into all nations and preach the gospel. Up to this point, it's been Jewish people getting saved. In fact, we could have called Christianity a sect of Judaism. Because they've just been going on. They've been meeting in the temple. They've been meeting in Solomon's porch and meeting from house to house and very effective. And then there was persecution and it spread to Judea and Samaria. And then the persecution stopped. At least it was backed off for a while. And when it did, then they began to go and strengthen the churches that had been established under the persecution. And while Peter was in Joppa, remember, he has this vision because God wants to bring the Romans in, but he, there's a Roman who is, fears God and is trying to do what's right. The Bible says that God gives men, all men, light, that God writes the law on their hearts. You don't have to have the law in the Bible to know that murder is wrong. God writes that on our hearts and that God reveals himself through nature and that God is not far from any of us in Acts, 20, in Acts 17, 26. And, the, and that was said to the Athenians that were an unreached people group for the gospel when Paul said that. God's not far from anyone on the earth. And he's put them in times and places that they would grow for him and find God. And here's this Roman centurion and other Romans who want to know God, but they don't know anything about him. But there's something going on in Peter's heart. Peter, in the customs of their day, don't like Gentiles. And Peter's never walked into the house of a Gentile. He's never sat down and had a meal with a Gentile. And so God's got to convert Peter from his heart so that he'll care about the Romans. The Romans were the occupiers. The Romans were as far on the other side of the aisle as you could get from the Jewish people living in Israel. And he had to have his heart changed to go into the house of a Roman in Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritime, which was the headquarters of Pontius Pilate and where the Romans came in and where they were, were, um, where they were kept until they were sent out into other places within the country. And so his heart has to change. And God did that. That was our study last week. I won't go back over it again, but God's able to change our hearts. Does God need to change our hearts? Are there those that we think can't be reached? Are, they, are there those that we don't love? Are there those that maybe, you know, maybe homosexuals, you think, I don't want to reach them. Or, or someone who's transgender. I don't want to reach them. Listen, if a prostitute weeping at the feet of Jesus could be reached, then a transgender person could be reached for Christ. Amen. Then someone who's a homosexual could be reached for Christ. Then God could move in their lives. We need to have a love for the lost. Jesus came to call sinners. If a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus can be saved, 
then who can't be saved among us? It, sinners. He came to sinners, those who were living such things. And it seems to me we want to put a lot of distance between ourselves and, and them. Instead of standing for Christ and loving them and perhaps giving them an opportunity to see Christ. And Christ comes in and hearts change. That's what God does. He changes hearts. He told the woman caught in the act of adultery, go your way and sin no more. He didn't accept her sin, but he changed her. And our God's big enough to change someone caught up in the transgender lifestyle, someone caught up in the homosexual lifestyle, someone who is a Democrat. God's big enough to change. Maybe we have to have, maybe we have to have a conversion so that we'll be willing to go where God wants us to go, where there's someone who's fearing God and responding to the light that God has given them. Now, Peter makes his way to the house of Cornelius. He knocks on the door. He's in Caesarea Maritime. He gets into the house and now we have Cornelius, the one that God was drawing. And we have Peter, the one that God had to convert so they would go into the house of a Roman. And now they're under the same roof. That's where our, our text opens up. So it says in verse 34, then Peter opened up his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. This is what Peter had learned. God sees people. God doesn't see color or politics. God doesn't see, God sees the sin that needs to be forgiven, which he died for on the cross. God doesn't show any partiality. We may need to have a little awakening like Peter did. But in every nation, go out into all nations and make disciples. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, don't take that out of context. And, and that's what some people try to do. In every nation, anybody fears God and works righteously, then they're saved. That's what they'll try to say. We got to take the Bible in its context. These people are going to get saved. He doesn't say to these Roman citizens, you know, you fear God, you're doing righteously. So then, you know, you, then you're going to be saved. This is God's doing something in Cornelius and, and we could call it a, a pre-salvation. God's drawing them. They're going to be saved, but they're in this process before salvation. And I don't even quite know what to call it but I see it happen all the time. There are people that come to church. They start coming to church. Why are they coming to church? Because God's drawing them. Because something's happened and God's done a work in their heart, but they're not saved yet. But they're coming to church, maybe Wednesday night and Sunday morning, Wednesday night and Sunday morning. And on one of those days when I say, would you like to invite Christ into your life today? All of a sudden they're ready and they raise their hand. And they've come for a while, but they've given now they give their lives to Christ. And you may be in that, that process right now. You may be wondering, what is God all about? Maybe it's because of a family or, or a friend that you saw loving Jesus and you just became interested and you're here. That's like Cornelius. And so then he says in verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Notice where the word God sent. Now, Jesus is the word and Jesus preached the word and the word was sent to the children of Israel. So it was the children of Israel who got the Messiah. That's where it all started. 
preaching peace through Jesus Christ. It says, excuse me, the word which God has sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now this he is Lord of all is a deity statement. And I won't go into all the reason that it's a deity statement, but Lord of all is God, okay? He is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all of Judea and began in the Galilee, afterwards the baptized, after the baptism of John was uh, preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power, who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed by the devil. Now we know that the Old Testament had said the Messiah would come and do miracles. And we know that Jesus came and did miracles. And remember when John had a little doubt, wondered if Jesus was the Messiah, he sent his disciples and said, are you the one or should we look for another? And that Jesus said, go back and tell him what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them. These were the signs of the Messiah given in the Old Testament. It wasn't just out of the blue or out of context that he was doing these miracles. He was fulfilling what the Old Testament said the Messiah would be doing. And so then he says, for God was with him and we are witnesses of the things which he both which he did both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem, whom they killed and hung on a tree. Now, Peter says, we're eyewitnesses to it. We saw it. The strongest evidence that you can have in a case are eyewitnesses. And we have eyewitness accounts given through the pages of Scripture. It's one of the things that makes the Bible so powerful. People have been attacking it for years, tearing it down. But we have all of the manuscripts from throughout all of history, 5,000 Greek manuscripts alone of the New Testament. Very good manuscripts of the Old Testament. We have archaeology that continues to confirm the Bible. We have God revealing himself that Jesus indeed lived and died. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. But it says, him he killed by hanging on a tree. Now, this is a reference to the crucifixion. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So under the law, there were blessings and curses. And if you kept the law, you would, you would have your socks blessed off. When you read the blessings that if you'll keep my law, I'll do this for you and that for you and this for you. I think it's Deuteronomy 28. I think the curses are Deuteronomy 29 or 27 and 28. It's around there. But if you didn't keep the law, there's a list of curses. Here recently, archaeology found a cursed stone on Mount Ebal, which is the, where they gave the curses. This cursed tablet is just an inch by an inch, but has the name of Yahweh in it. And, and they, they cried out the curses from one mountain and from Mount Gerizim, they cried out the blessings. So Jesus came because they didn't keep the law. Now, they could have still sinned under the law and kept it, remember, because they could make sacrifices. But they didn't. They became idolaters. They began to worship other gods. And so God had cast them off. And then it says, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You can't have a more cursed person than someone who's crucified. The person that found themselves crucified was under a curse. It was a cursed thing not to be able to move from that tree, to be nailed to it, to be dying there. 
to be to have the exposure, to be writhing, trying to get breath by pushing your 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 weight up on your feet, pulling yourself up by your hands just to get a breath. And so the pain was too much and you'd collapse until so you had to breathe again. and You pull yourself back up again. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Then verse 40 simply says this. Him, God, raised on the third day. God raised him from the dead. Now, when you hear that, I remember as a, I don't know, 13, 14 year old kid still involved in the Methodist church going to sunrise service on, on Easter Sunday. And I remember getting there and we're walking through the park where the sunrise service was. And I remember thinking, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I don't know that he did. I don't think that he did rise from the dead. I'm quite sure everyone here has had some kind of doubt like that. But think of a couple of things. Number one, if God, why is there anything? Why is there anything? If God created the heavens and the earth, then he can bring someone out of the grave. So first of all, you have to ask, is there a God and did God create everything we have? Is this just random? Is what the, the humanists believe that something came out of nothing? Do we live in a world that something can come out of nothing? Have you ever seen something come out of nothing? But have you ever seen anything supernatural? Have you ever seen God move in a supernatural way? And there are miracles today. Documented cases of people praying and asking God to heal them and they are healed. I believe that God does miracles periodically. Doesn't do a lot of them. I believe he does them periodically to show us that they can be done and that they are done. There's a book called A Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel. If you don't believe it, then, then read his book. He was a, 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 a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he put his journalistic skills into whether or not these miracles were true. And the evidence is overwhelming and amazing. And if God is doing miracles today, then tell me, could he have marked the greatest event, a man dying on the tree for the sins of mankind? Could he have marked that by rising him from the dead? On top of that, Jesus, we know, was a real person. When I first started pastoring in, 19, in 1985, <laughs> there are a lot of people that thought Jesus was a myth. A lot of scholars did. But since then, there's been so much evidence outside of the scriptures for the existence of Jesus that virtually no scholar believes that he was a myth. In fact, I'm going to say it. No scholar does. The only people who believe that he was a myth are YouTube channel people. And they say Jesus was a myth. But scholars say no. We know he... Tatticus wrote about him. Philo wrote about him. Josephus wrote about him. These are, these are secular sources that wrote about Jesus. They wrote about his brother James. They wrote about him being crucified under Pontius Pilate. These are not scriptures. These are not Christians writing these things. We know of, in, in all of history, there is nothing as sure as the existence of Jesus, the crucifixion and death under Pontius Pilate, and the empty tomb. Now, I'm not saying that scholars believe he resurrected from the dead. I'm saying they know there was an empty tomb. The world was transformed on the back of that empty tomb because Christianity went from being very small to taking over the world within a couple of decades. And, 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 and from there, even more so. If they wanted to stop Christianity, all they had to do was bring the body of Jesus. The tomb 
was empty. And people say, well, it was the wrong tomb. Joseph of Arimathea knew where his tomb was. They didn't put him in the wrong tomb. Become silly. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. This is the heart of the gospel. You, you have to believe Jesus rose from the dead as a Christian. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scriptures say, whoever believes in the Lord or whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not rise, then we of all people are the most pitiable because we're still in our sins, because we're believing a lie. We're living a lie. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have eternity waiting for us and we have our Lord and Savior who is Lord of all doing a work in us now in the middle of a lost and perishing world. Now it goes on to say that he raised him from the dead and showed him openly. These are accounts of people seeing him after he had risen from the dead. Not to all people, but to, to witnesses chosen before God. Even to us who ate and drank with him and arose, uh, he arose from the dead. They saw it. Now, Paul wrote about this because Paul was one who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And Paul wrote and from an earlier passage that had been given to him about the gospel. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you're saved. This is how salvation comes. The gospel is preached. You receive it. You stand in it and then you are saved by it. If you hold fast to the words which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain, meaning that you, you heard it, you believe it, but you don't live it. That's demonic faith, the Bible says. There are people that believe everything about Jesus, but they aren't living for him. And so he says, lest you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. So we know this is an earlier account. Some date what he's going to tell you now to five years after the time that Jesus rose from the dead. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The Bible foretold in the Old Testament that he would die for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. The Bible foretold his resurrection. You will not allow the, the body of your Holy One to see corruption, the Bible had said. It was according to the scriptures that he would rise and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then the 12, remember this is Paul now writing in Corinthians, then the 12, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain present. In other words, you can go and check this out yourself. The greater part are still alive when Paul's writing this in the early 50s, the first century, the early 50s, still within 20 years of the time that Jesus rose from the dead, you could go and find these people that saw him when he appeared to over 500 at one time. And then he says, but some have fallen asleep, meaning they died. After that, he was seen by James, that's his brother. Then all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time. So Peter says he rose him from the dead and he appeared to certain witnesses that could speak to, of him. Now Cornelius is taking all of this in. So this Messiah came to, to Israel, Jerusalem, preached and started in the Galilee. 
And then God, then he, he was crucified and hung on a tree. And then he rose from the dead. And there are eyewitnesses to this. Then he says this in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to all people. Now note that command. He commanded us to preach to all people. Mark 16. Go therefore and preach the gospel to every creature. I love that he didn't say every person, every creature. Just in case you thought somebody wasn't a person. Every creature. Preach the gospel to them all. That, that's, our, that's our desire. To plant seeds, to water seeds. That God could add the increase. To be able to live our lives in such a way that people would see Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Bible says. That we would have an opportunity to, to make a difference in people's lives as the light of the world, as the salt of the earth. He commanded us to preach to all people and to testify that he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead, that's Jesus, to him all the prophets witnessed through his name. Whoever believes in him would receive the remission of sins. Notice he says in the Old Testament you can find whoever believes in him will have the remission of sins. So there are all kinds of passages. Isaiah 53, 11, Jeremiah 31, 34, Daniel 9, 24, and so on. If you simply cross-reference that verse, if you cross-reference verse 43, you'll find Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus, or will talk about God forgiving people's sins in the latter days. And you'll find those passages I mentioned and even more. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. These, those who heard the word. So while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Do you remember when we saw the Samaritan Pentecost, when they received the Holy Spirit? Do you remember that Peter and John came down and laid their hands on them and prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit? So people today say, well, that's how you receive the Holy Spirit. Someone's got to lay hands on you and then you receive the Holy Spirit. Not here. They're preaching. And the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. See, we want to put God in a box. It was done that way there, so it must always be done that way. God does it different ways. God does it as God wants to do it. God wants to give somebody the Holy Spirit. He can give them the Holy Spirit, even if there's preaching going on. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Now these were the ones that came from Joppa with Peter. See, they were going from city and city, strengthening the brethren. And, and, and now they'd gone all the way to Caesarea Marentime, which is a two-day walk, by the way. And they're astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Notice they speak in tongues, which means to speak in a language they didn't know. Probably like in Acts chapter 2, a known language, not a heavenly language, but a known language. And notice here that they are magnifying God. This isn't a thus says the Lord message in tongues. The Bible says when someone speaks in tongues, it's his spirit speaking to God. It's not you giving a message in, in tongues that somebody else interprets. A true interpretation of tongues would be praise. According to the New Testament, it would be, Lord, we lift you up. We praise your name. We magnify you. It wouldn't be, 
I, the Lord God, says to this church that I will use you in the most powerful way that you've ever been used. You can tell that I've been in a few charismatic and Pentecostal churches and that I've heard the interpretation of tongues. Only one time have I heard it interpreted as a, as a praise. And that was in an afterglow on Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque where we've been taught what the Bible had to say about tongues. They heard them magnifying God. They heard them in speaking tongues and, 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 and magnifying God. Now, how did they know they were magnifying God? Was this a language that Peter knew that Cornelius didn't know? Maybe this was Hebrew? Cornelius would, would know Latin. Cornelius would know uh, Greek. Aramaic, maybe not. But that was the language that they spoke in Israel at the time. Greek, they both spoke Greek and Aramaic. I don't know. But they knew they were magnifying God. So they're saved because the Spirit has come into them. The Bible says no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And once you've got the Holy Spirit, you're saved. So they recognize that these people have gotten saved. And it goes on to say then in verse 47, can anyone forbid water that they should be baptized who, who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days. Now, I commend Peter here. What an amazing thing to come out of Judaism where Jesus was Jewish, preaching in Galilee, then Jerusalem, and then Jews getting saved, and now Roman Gentiles get saved, and Peter says, baptize them. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to eat kosher. They don't have to keep any law. This should put away the argument that we have to keep the law sometimes. There are people still alive today, many of them, that want to put you under the law. That want to make you think you've got to go to church on Sunday, a Saturday, to really be saved. You've got to keep the law in order to really be saved. That we are still under the law. They pick and choose what they want. They don't, they don't want to keep the whole law, but they pick and choose and try to put you under it. I had one of them come up to me after a service one time and say, do you believe we should keep the Ten Commandments? Now I knew what they were about. So I said, no, we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments because I knew what they wanted. They wanted me to go, yes, and they go, why don't you go to church on Saturday then? Why aren't you keeping the Sabbath? That's what they wanted. I didn't want to give them that satisfaction. So I said, no, I don't keep the Ten Commandments. But I do because Jesus is our Sabbath. We don't keep the Sabbath. And by the way, neither do the Seventh-day Adventists or any other Sabbatarian group because they aren't doing what the Bible says. They're going to church on Saturday. Where did it say go to church on Saturday is keeping the Sabbath? They're teaching the commandments of men as if they are the commandments of God, which is the same thing the Pharisees were doing when they added to traditions about the Sabbath. They were doing the same thing. These guys got saved completely apart from the law. In Acts chapter 15, when they, this argument finally will come to a head because people are going to, there's going to be legalists and Judaizers who are going to try to make them become Jewish to be saved. And when it finally comes to a head, it's going to point back to this moment, what God did here. Obviously, you don't have to keep the law. Otherwise, these people wouldn't have gotten saved because they weren't keeping it. These Roman soldiers were keeping it and they got saved. Now, three things in closing. Number one, salvation is a work of God. We can't get anybody saved. 
The Bible says one man plants, another man waters, and God gives the increase. And we probably come in mid-process. We may be planting seeds in the very, before they even are drawn to God, right when they're beginning to be drawn to God. We may be watering these seeds when God's beginning to work inside of them. But by the time I, I, I give them here and give them an opportunity to get saved, they've already been thinking and drawn by God because no one can come to the, the Son unless the Father draws him. Now, not everyone who is drawn has to, has to go. They can not follow him. Jesus, somebody says, well, if God chooses you, then you're chosen and that's it, you're going to heaven. Jesus said, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. And one of you is the devil. So he chose him, but Judas never chose him. See, God could choose you, but you don't choose him. It's like a marriage. Both people have to agree. Or you've got something other than a marriage. I don't know what you got, but both people have to agree. And you may be in that process today. God may be saving you. I can't save myself. God's the one who did it. No one saved me. Even the youth pastor who gave me an invitation to give my life to Christ, he didn't save me. It was Christ that did the work. It was Christ who saved me. God's the one who gets people saved. And we see that clearly in this account. It's not Peter. Peter was sleeping on a rooftop. And, and the Lord's like, I got something for you to do. Number two, whatever we do in the kingdom, our goal is to see people become disciples. Our goal is not just conversions. Our goal is to go out into all nations and make disciples. This is our highest call. The great command and the great commission. That's what we're about. I believe that Rick Warren was correct. There is no church that would be a failure if they prioritized the great command and the great commission. There's no way. I don't care if God used you on a small level. You would still be successful. Who says that something has to be large to be successful? Every church, every true church should prioritize the great command and the great commission. This is what, our, what it's about. We don't need any other vision. This is our vision. And we should get it and keep it and learn more about it and want to see it done and want it happen to our friends and our families and our coworkers and our acquaintances that we can share Christ with them knowing that after death there comes judgment. So we care about them. We care about them even if they're Romans. Verse 3. You're like, what do you have against Romans? Is it allegory? Verse 3, I mean, uh, third, third point in closing. What kind of conversion does God need to do in you? Are there people that you see that you think are unreachable? Might God not surprise you in some people getting saved that you wouldn't think could get saved? God could save anyone. There's no one out of his reach. God, in Acts 17, 26, God puts people in times and places that they would grope for him and find him. So people are where they are in, the, in their place, their city, and in the time they live so that they might grope for him and find him because he's not far from any of them. There's no one that God's far from. You think they're a lost cause. They're beyond being reached. 
There's no way they can know Jesus, not them. There's no one that God is far from. And he, Jesus said it himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and save sinners. That's who he's come for. So are you praying for the sinners in your life? Are you asking God to intervene? Do you know that God can reach the, the, the woman with the bad reputation that wept at his feet and wiped her tears off with his hair? The woman caught in the act of adultery, a chief tax collector? Are you praying for the people in your life that you feel are the farthest from God? Because maybe they're closer to God than you think. You think they're not about God at all, but God's not far from any of us, the Bible says. Even, even the, 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 the villager, the unreached people group that's living on some island somewhere, God's not far from them. God's wrote the law on their hearts. God's given them creation. God's manifest that he exists in their hearts and he's not far from them. He's not far from anyone. So will, will you pray for them? Will you look for opportunities to share? Would you be a part of the Great Commission? Because it's not just pastors. The Bible says that a pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You know who the saints are? You guys. Here in this room, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. Most of you are saints. Maybe today, some of you who are ain'ts will become saints. And God will use you as light and salt in this world. God said, I, Jesus said, I will build my church on this rock. A church was an ecclesia. It's a community with authority. People say, well, a church is a gathering. That's not what the word ecclesia means. Ecclesia was a city council that had authority. He took a Greek, there's a Greek word that there was an ecclesia in Athens. There was an ecclesia in Corinth. Every city had a group of people with authority that were in that city. And so we are God's authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go out and make disciples of all nations. We have his authority. We are the ecclesia. And then he said, and I give you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of Hades will not prevail against you. He said that in Caesarea Philippi where there were the literal pagan gates of Hades. There were people that worshiped the Greek god Hades at the very place Jesus said it. Will you heed the call? Will you become about the Great Commission? Will you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will you love your neighbor as yourself? Will you lay down your life to be able to live that others might see Christ in you, the hope of glory? Will you be the light and the salt? Will you learn that it's not about you or your comfort or your happiness. My mom used to say to me, Robert, I just, just want you to be happy. Sometimes we think God just wants us to be happy. Live your happy life. It's not about that. God isn't trying to make you comfortable in some giant blanket feeding you a bottle like a baby. You're a soldier. You're in the kingdom of God. You're supposed to do the work God's called you to do. Do you care about people? Do you care about the lost? Are you willing to, to cry for them? to fast for them, to pray for them, that we could see people come to Christ. Because if we don't, what are we doing? Just living our lives for ourselves? 
It's a, it's a waste. One day will turn into another day, it'll turn into another day, and then we'll die. Sorry to be so gloomy, but it's true. And someone said, only that which is done for Christ will last. And that's the truth. May we be the light, the salt. The gates of hell won't prevail against us. Meaning we'll be successful. Not everyone's going to get saved, but we are going to be successful. People are going to get saved. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you as we see these Romans coming to Christ. Thank you that you speak to us about the way that we should live, that you've given us the great command. And Father, forgive us when we haven't loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And forgive us when we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves, when we've cared more about ourselves than we do other people, when we've lived a secular life in front of people who are perishing, even though we've called out on your name. And Lord, help us to do the Great Commission. We're here. We'll go. Lord, use us. Open up doors. Let the, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit be involved and let people come to you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.